And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. On the phone line with us today is Pastor Yuri Brito, pastor of Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida, and founder and contributor to the Kyperian Commentary. Uh, pastor Yuri, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Hi, Dan. It's uh, good to be back. We have an interesting day coming up this coming Monday, Valentine's Day. And so um, I hope that our fellow men in the homes will show consideration to their wives and love them and honor them. And so let's talk about that a little bit, Pastor Yuri. Um, you are a father, a husband. And first of all, how many children do you guys have? We have uh, five children, ranging from the ages of 13 all the way down to four. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty young home. I remember what it's like in those days. It's uh, extremely busy, and uh, it's very fulfilling, and yet it's tiring, is it not? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the volume, if you put, if the volume max is a 10, the volume at our home is somewhere between an 8 and a 15. <laughs> Yeah, I <laughs> and, and there's no there's no way to tune it down until uh, until they're they're happily asleep at night. Yes, yes, and in some ways we wouldn't want it any other way because um, kids are just naturally, hopefully, happy and cheerful and running around and making all kinds of noise, and that's kind of the way the Lord made them. Yeah, that's correct. It's also, as a, as a side note, Dan, it's the way God created the world. Um, I suspect that uh, those six days were pretty full of noise and movement, and uh, that's kind of how we create our homes also. There's noise yeah. and movement, and I think that's how God intended. Yeah. Well, um, you, you can't miss it. Uh, you, you walk into a store. I don't go to stores too much, but you walk into a store and you see candy sitting around, a lot of colors of pink and red. And uh, people trying to sell you all kinds of candy and flowers, and that, that's fine. But um, Valentine's Day, uh, what do we know about it? Where, where did it come from, anyway? So that's a story that is most often overwhelmed by the kind of cultural romanticism that surrounds uh, Valentine's Day. You know, Valentine's is sort of derived from the word valens, which simply means strong, worthy, or powerful. And actually, the, the root of this holiday uh, comes from a Christian saint by the name of St. Valentine, who lived in the 3rd century. We don't know much about him. There's some speculation. But we do know that he lived in the 3rd century, in, and he was a priest under uh, Emperor Claudius II. And we do know also that he was executed, and the day is... Um, you know, as long as, historically at least, was on the February, February 14th. That's why we celebrate Valentine's Day on such a day. Oh. Now, the emperor, the emperor Claudius II was a very cruel emperor, and he had a, a tireless appetite for, uh, for blood. And one time, as he was pursuing one of his bloody campaigns, obviously he needed a, a strong army, to follow his desires, and he was vexed because he was he was able to draw a Roman soldier to his cause. And one of the reasons he wasn't able to draw a Roman soldier to his cause was because the soldiers, as you can imagine, were very attached to their wives and their families. Sure. And so what 
the emperor Claudius II did is he he did the unthinkable. He banned marriages and engagements in Rome during that time. Mm. And that's when we have the emergence of Valentine, who believed that this was uh, biblically and, and ecclesiastically an injustice. And he, as a priest, he said, I'm going to continue to perform weddings, whether the emperor says uh, <laughs> n- whatever he says, um, I'm bound by a different, a different uh, order altogether. And so he disregarded the laws of Claudius, and he was arrested in the 3rd century, and he was uh, beheaded. Uh, but the Church hasn't forgotten him as the one who desired the uh, union of husbands in a time of great cruelty, uh, union of husbands to their wives, and the continuation of life as usual among men and women. Oh, my. I did not know that story. It's very interesting. Um, so he felt... It, it, it is quite interesting, and it would, it would also, as a side note, then, it, it, would, it would certainly reshape the modern concept of, of Valentine's we have in our culture as this uh, sort of, um, you know, innocent, um, chocolatey sort of approach to <laughs> this holiday. He was standing up to tyranny, really. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, today we're talking with Dr. Yuri Brito, and he's pastor of Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida. Coming up next week, God willing, is Valentine's Day on uh, the 14th, which is a Monday, not, what, two days from now. And um, as we're recording this, I still yet to have to get some flowers for my wife. Hopefully by the time it airs, uh, I will have already gotten them, Yuri. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, you better, Dan. <laughs> but it's something that uh, we want to do and enjoy doing. Um, Valentine's Day. So in light of being a Christian and having our hearts changed by God and loving Him and obeying His laws, um, is there anything that comes to m- your mind, Yuri, as we celebrate Valentine's Day in our Christian homes? Well, I think there is a tremendous value to these holidays that are apart from the ecclesiastical holiday, which we call the church calendar. Valentine's Day is not part of the church calendar per se, but there's some of these holidays that are significant, and I think they they accentuate godly Christian principles, and Valentine's Day is one of those days. The one thing that comes to mind, of course, you consider Valentine's, is the concept of sacrifice. It is rooted, in my estimation, in the apostolic exhortation in Ephesians chapter 5, where the apostle says that husbands are to love their wives and wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, one of the misunderstandings that we have of a passage like that is we tend to read it in a very raw fashion, you know. And we tend to say, well, a husband ought to love and a woman ought to submit. Mm. Well, well, the Bible fills in some of, these, uh, some of these blanks. It's not just a generic love. It's a specific love. It's not just a generic submission. It's a specific submission. For instance, the husband, who is the head of his home, who represents Christ, has a very clear instruction. So in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was the great husband of the Church, he loved his bride to the point of death, to the point of death. 
which means that love takes on an entirely new perspective. The generic love that a lot of Americans tend to think when it comes to relationships and uh, Valentine's Day gives way, steps aside, is in some ways excommunicated and replaced by a sacrificial love that is eager to die for a woman. And that woman who is uh, the bride is a woman who is worthy is a worthy recipient of that self-giving love. And so the man has something very specific in mind. And so um, beyond the flowers, beyond the chocolate, beyond whatever festivities come with that, the man needs to be reminded on Valentine's Day on February the 14th that he has a particular function to fulfill, not only on behalf of his household, but also on behalf of the church. The man, as a husband, is indeed a missionary of the church, he is a missionary of love on behalf of the church. And so he becomes an ambassador of love on behalf of the church. And how he demonstrates his love for his wife is going to be reflected in the life of the church. And so, and that means that children pick up on patterns. Those around him pick up on patterns. How is this man representing Christ at home? How is this man representing Christ in public? And so there's nothing about love that's neutral. Everything about love has a public nature. In the same manner, a woman is called to submit. This is not a blind submission. She submits wisely. She submits when at times it's inconvenient. She submits in ways that exalts the reputation of her husband in the home. But it's not a blind submission. She doesn't submit if the husband demands of her things that are unbiblical and ungodly. She doesn't submit if there is abuse in the home. She doesn't submit under these dire circumstances. So even that is a very particularized. She submits because what she sees is a husband that is willing to give of himself even to the point of death. And at that point, a woman's submission becomes easy. And as husbands, that's what we should desire, that our wives would submit with a high level of ease. Mm. That she shouldn't have to work hard at submission, but that she should be glad to reciprocate the love that she has received from her own groom. Mm, mm. I'm sitting here thinking about a scenario, and I, I bet you can relate. Um, suppose that there's a husband in the home that, you know, he loves the Lord, and uh, he's very involved in the church and serving the church and sacrificing for the church, but so much so that he's starting to neglect his home, starting to neglect his wife. Because, well, we have just so much time that the Lord has given us. We're out working, uh, serving in the church and everything. Um, any guidelines for the man who who feels an obligation, a delightful obligation, to serve the church and yet not compromise his relationship with his family and his wife in so doing? That's a terrific question, and... Part of the answer to that question is that the husband needs to, the man needs to sort of reorient his understanding of the life of the church. That the life of the church is best suited for the family. I edited a book many years ago called The Church-Friendly Family, where we make that case. That very often a man thinks that he uh, serves the church alone and that he can do certain things better alone. But the incorporation of the family into the work of the church brings everybody into this corporate love 
for the church. Now, the other scenario is that uh, there are certain times, of course, when you can't draw the little kids with you to certain things, but I would encourage you to do as much as possible. <laughs> but the other scenario is the scenario in which the man is so in love with the ministry of the church, with the, with the reputation that comes with being a servant in the church, with the rapport he has of being a servant of the church, that he neglects his first love. Mm. And so that's why the pastoral letters are so filled with the idea that, that there's a primacy to managing your household well. And in such cases, I hope that that man is surrounded by other men who sees this kind of neglect and this misprioritized lifestyle, which happens quite a bit, by the way, in pastoral families. And if, if he has surrounded himself with these kinds of men who are able to point things out, that's great. But pastors who are over these men should be able to understand that if this man is not productive and fruitful in the home, he is not going to be productive and fruitful in the church, right. meaning that his, his labors can very quickly uh, be wasted if his children go astray, if his wife uh, m- you know, moves in her affection. And so that's why God places a, a strict hierarchy that you are to manage your household well, because if you don't, the managing of the church um, eventually is going to go awry. So you, the energy that you have to invest in the church will be, now eventually that fuel is going to run, run out if that investment has not been placed in your, in your home first. Mm. And so my general principle is that men should spend time with other men uh, sparingly, but that they should to uh, sort of refresh their their energies and mm-hmm. their desires to serve. But if the wife is being neglected, um, that time is if the wife is being neglected, then that man is misprioritizing. And the simplest way a man can find out whether he is misprioritizing is to ask his wife, is to ask his children, is to ask those around him. And so I'm always very skeptical of the man who loves to boast and how much he works for the church. And usually that is a red flag to me because my, probably my next question is, well, how, do your, how does your family feel Amen. about that? Yes, yes. Um, one thing that um, uh, men do, and grandpas especially uh, love to do, is to read to their children and to their grandchildren. Um, Sometimes when one of my grandchildren come to me and I'm in my chair, um, possibly following a thread on the computer or whatever, um, the child comes with book in hand and says, Pop up, you read me a book. And the easiest thing in the world for me is to say, oh, j- just wait a minute, just wait, <laughs> and put it off, you know. Right. Um, but I catch myself, or I try to, or, or I should catch myself, uh, if at all possible, and spend time with that little soul reading to them. And it may not have to be really long, but um, it seems like we're kind of, um, we kind of need to be in a mode where we can be interrupted, and and the concerns of that little one then become our concerns. Any any advice along that, those lines? Yeah, a couple of things. And the first one is that we typically view uh, Valentine's Day or such occasions as primarily uh, in a 
you know, a groom and bride uh, union, which is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, perhaps a fundamental application, sure. certainly. But love is not bound by these unions. Love has to do with uh, relationships of all sorts. A grandfather and a grandson or granddaughter is a tremendous commitment to, uh, to love. And the second point is that love should be prepared for interruptions at all times. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, if you display love, understanding that love as uninterrupted, that's not true love. True love is the love that is uh, willing to be interrupted. So if, if you're showing affection or if you, you feel like you're doing something good, you're showing love for one particular person, and someone comes to you and says, um, I would like some bread. And you say, well, uh, no, um, my focus is going to be only in this person here because he is easy to love. Mm. Well, that other person who's asked for bread, um, what, what you're saying in essence in your response is that you are content in giving him a stone mm-hmm. when he's asked for bread. And that's problematic because love sees needs differently than someone who is... Uh, convenient love is easy, but interrupted love is hard. And that's the kind of love that God expects. God expects that kind of love from husbands uh, from grandparents, from friends, which is the ability to say, you know, in my mind, this task is so significant. However, the fact that a child or grandchild say, Pop-Pop, can you please read this Curious George book to me? <laughs> um, love sees these on a scale and says, at this stage, the need of my grandson is more important then my need to finish this project that can be certainly done mm-hmm. two hours from now or 30 minutes from now. So love prioritizes, and if I can uh, have some elasticity in my language here, love prioritizes and is easily interruptible. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, our guest today is Pastor Yuri Brito, pastor of Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, We're talking about Valentine's Day, which is just a couple of days away, uh, God willing. Um, The home, the Christian home, it's a wonderful place to illustrate uh, Christ's love and to to get it fleshed out, as it were. Um, What about those uh, men of God who, uh, I'm not one of them, who have chosen a life of celibacy for the kingdom, they're rare, I suppose, but it does happen. Any comments about them? Yes. I think the, uh, the, the premise of the First Corinthians 7 passage the Apostle Paul um, has in mind, the premise is that those who are, are celibate and choose a life of singleness, and I think obviously those are the, the, the exceptions, the, the biblical norm fits the paradigm of Psalm 127 and 28, sure. 128. but the, the exceptions that you see, there's a tremendous benefit there that single men and single women should view their roles as one that easily incorporates their lives into the lives of others, because ultimately in the life of the Church there is no true singleness. In the life of the Church there's only true, there's only true community which means that if you take five single people, when they join together, they form 
a bond, a marriage with one another. They form a community with one another. And so I'm always concerned that uh, families uh, view uh, marriage and, and, and family units as the, the sole source of true life. And that usually means they neglect showing love to those who are single in the congregation. Hmm. Now, on the other hand, those who are single in the congregation have a tremendous responsibility. In fact, I think the implication of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that those who are single have the greater benefit of seeing immediate fruit in their lives as opposed to those who are married. Hmm. So those who are married and have children, we have a generational sense of the fruits of our labors. We pour ourselves into our children day after day, changing diapers, having the hard conversations, with the hope of, that the promises of God will be fulfilled, that one day they will get married to godly people and they'll produce offspring, and we will rejoice in the offspring of our offspring. That is a generational, that is a 20, 40, 60, 80-year-old vision that married people have. Whereas the Apostle Paul says that in the the mindset of a single person, of which he was one, uh, there's some debate about whether he was married before or not, but at least we know that when he penned 1 Corinthians 7, he was single. Mm -hmm. For the Apostle Paul, the single person sees immediate fruit, immediate fruit of their labors. They see the immediate fruit of discipleship. They see the immediate fruit of, 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 of helping someone when mom or dad are changing diapers at home. Um, in other words, the single person gets to see the public fruits of their labors, whereas the married man and the married woman sees only the private fruit of their labors. So that's the, the kind of distinction. Now, those private fruits will bear public fruit, but the single person sees public fruits first, whereas a married person most often sees mm. private fruit. Does that, does that distinction make sense? Yes, it really does. It really does. I got thinking about that because now and then we are contacted by, let's say, a nun or a, or a priest or what have you, even from different um, you know, Roman Catholic, Orthodox backgrounds, everything. So um, I've become sensitive to that a little bit. Um, and these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we love them. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And uh, there's a lot to statistically talk about this, but for my, for my understanding, my recollection, it's true that I think one-third of the missionary efforts around the world are composed of single men and single women. Oh, wow. And the other element of that is that um, married couples who go into the mission field, now we're talking about mission field as a, mm-hmm. as a unique calling, obviously. So singleness is a unique calling, mission field is a unique calling, but it's always a good illustration. It's very common in, in the missiological world for um, married couples to have a temporary stay in foreign countries. Usually, that's because they have a lot more to bear with. Mm. They have a lot more issues to deal with. And that's why many wives don't adjust to different cultures. Many children don't adjust to different cultures. So if the husband has said, I have a dream of being a missionary, well, that dream can be easily shattered within six months. Oh, yeah. If he doesn't, if the, the wives or the children don't adjust, whereas a single person has historically uh, had a, a, a greater impact in the missiological world. And we're talking about, obviously, Amy Carmichael, but there are many, many more examples hmm. of these kinds of things because they're not hindered by by familial concerns, by concerns of protection, by other um, worldly concerns that married people have. 
Yeah, good point. Uh, in the last two minutes remaining, uh, maybe you could direct our listeners to your writings, and particularly the Kuyperian Commentary. Thank you, Dan, for that. Um, yes, I, you know, I've been fairly busy uh, these last few um, few months. I have a few book projects coming underway, one on pastoral theology, and one which I'm really interested in, in concluding. It's a case for why children should be in the worship with their parents on Sunday morning. And hopefully I'll be able to post some of that. We have um, several articles that are published weekly on Kyperian.com. That's K-U-Y-P-E-R-I-A-N, including uh, an article entitled, Who Was Valentine? And that would be of curiosity for those. If someone just <laughs> types, Who Was Valentine? Uh, that'll give you a little summary, and I shared some of that at the beginning of our of our conversation here, an article I wrote um, a couple of years ago. But it's just a, a rich array of topics. This morning's article that, that was published that I wrote was entitled uh, Joe Rogan and the Case for Long Conversations, which plays into some of the conversations we're having lately on the, uh, the role of, of, of dialogue in our society. And my general case is that a leftist ideology hates long conversations, but yes. Christians should have a hunger for that. So there's a lot of interesting things going on in Kyperian. I would encourage folks to go there. And then my private blog is uh, uribrito.com, U-R-I-B-R-I-T-O.com, where I'll post uh, sermon links and different things of, of that nature. And uh, I hope it contributes to these greater conversations that you, um, you do so well in bringing to our attention. Hmm. Well, praise the Lord. Yuri Brito, my dear brother, thank you for joining us today, and may God bless you, your your family, your church down in Pensacola, and may the kingdom advance through all of these wonderful efforts. Thank you, Dan, for your kindness, and I appreciate your labors, and we'll talk to you again soon. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. 